welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. And this week, the elegant tank is still 100% on, and I'm trying to convince David that he can actually wear a tank top. Uh, <laughs> can you really rely on a good quarterback with the kind of goatee that, that CJ Beathard is sporting? Uh, and he actually knows T-Swift because there's documented evidence of him at the tender age of what looks like, I don't know, two years old, <laughs> hanging out with Taylor Swift. Uh, he doesn't look near happy enough. Like he's, he's trying so hard not to act like this is the most amazing thing that's ever happened to him. Either that or he's just, he knows that this is just so cool. Like he's like, yeah, I'm cool. I'm the coolest 12 year old on the block. Let's do this. Um, I'm about, I'm about, I'm about to tweet this picture out with Taylor Swift because yeah. Oh my God. It's so incredible. Taylor Swift does not look 12. Uh, and CJ Beathard does, which means that we're old basically is what it means. I'm looking at a picture of my own mortality and it's not good. It's not good. And it involves apparently C.J. Beathard and Taylor Swift. A lot of looking at photographs of C.J. Beathard. <laughs> yes, let's, Just, let's uh... look at all of the photographs. <laughs> and hey, look, it's making us laugh. But let's get into the game recap and talk about the things that we think. This was a fifth straight game where we dropped the <laughs> with three points or less. Man, the Pythagorean win Wednesday. It is a Pythagorean win Wednesday. Absolutely. On it Thursday. Is. It, is. <laughs> it is. It's on Thursday. But the, the of course the big story of the game was going to be CJ Beathard and his now ascension to the starting quarterback role. And overall, we would say that his uh, quarterback play was rookie esque. I mean, CJ Beathard did rookie quarterback things. But yeah, I, I I feel like that's got to be the best way to sum it up because there were there were things that you know again he's a third round pick like he was somebody that uh, wasn't necessarily coming in very polished and you know had stuff to work on and and he didn't like it was a very run heavy offense at Iowa so even though he did more pro style things you know that that Shanahan's like to point out um he didn't do a lot of it right they they, they weren't throwing the ball a ton um and so yeah he had some stuff to work on for sure so you weren't expecting this you know kid to come in and and just be the most polished player and and kind of light things on fire but you saw I think enough there to where you're you're kind of hoping and, and there's enough to where I'm like intrigued, right? I want to see what happens with it, see uh, where that development can go and what we can get out of him for the, you know, the next 10 games or whatever it is. And I think that's the thing that that's important to me is I didn't think Shanahan would move to better to better because I just keep thinking beat hard in my head. But and I know so it's like, better. Don't say beat hard. But then now it's just better. Bettered. Yeah. Uh, I didn't think Shanahan would move to Bethard this early. I thought that if yeah. it did happen, it would happen closer to week eight and maybe after the bye. Right. But he, man, he pulled the hook and he was like, I'm not looking back. And he mentioned in the press conference that he's a little bit kind of impulsive. Like he's or not impulsive. He's impatient. Uh, and, and that's not necessarily a bad quality to have when you're trying to rebuild the team. Cause it's like, I know that this is what Hoyer is. I know he's probably not going to get any better. He's, you know, a nine, 10, 12, 15 year vet. Um, let's see what we've got. Let's figure it out and then go from there. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. I, I, I think in this situation with Brian Hoyer, it makes sense to be impatient, right? Like there's no, like we know what Brian Hoyer is. He's been the same guy basically his entire career. And, and there's a million guys like him bouncing around the league, going from team to team for no reason whatsoever. Um, I think where impatience might kill you is like Hugh Jackson, right? Like you look at what he did with Deshaun Kaiser and it's like, oh, on one hand, he's coming in and it's like we're, we're developing. We're, we're in the same sort of situation as the 49ers are in pretty much in terms of uh, trying to build this team back up. And we have what may be our young quarterback of the future. 
And then I get impatient because I want to win some games right now and save my job. And I pull him and then turns out Kevin Hogan's not very good either. So uh, let's put Deshaun Kaiser back in. And so you, you hope that like that sort of impatience, right? This year, it doesn't really matter. But next year, if they get a guy, you know, if they draft a guy high or something like that, you don't want to see that necessarily come through. So, I mean, maybe that's something to, to keep an eye on. But I think with Bethard, yeah, again, going back to Hoyer, there's no reason to to continue down that path. You know, I, I was like, yeah, I, I was surprised that he did it this early. Like, I thought they would kind of just want to just want right to stick with year. it. Yeah, right out the year, you know, l- l- let whatever happens happen and and kind of go from there. But um, yeah, I mean, why not see what you have in this guy, right? Um, and, and kind of get some more information, throw him out there, let him play in some situations that he didn't play a whole lot in in college, you know, see what he does when he's, uh, you know, trying to lead a team back and he's down and, the, you know, the defense knows that you have to throw the ball every down. You know, what does he do in those situations? So um, I think that's all good. I think what, one of the things that was one of those rookie QB things that was a little alarming was C.J. Beathard's trouble throwing outside the numbers, especially when throwing to his left. There were several out routes where you're like, ooh, that was close. Ooh, that was close. There was one that was completely off target where he he did sail it to the corner route, and at least he sailed it out of bounds, but nevertheless, he still sailed the pass. And I was talking to Ted Nguyen on Twitter a little bit about it, and he was mentioning that it didn't seem like Bethard was transferring the right amount of weight onto his front foot. Uh, and, and David, you also noticed kind of some problems with his mechanics when he was throwing to the left as well. Yeah, so, so you know those throws, especially to the intermediate area, when when right-handed quarterbacks are needing to throw to their left, right? You really want to see them. You got to open up those hips and and kind of really drive into that throw because it's a, uh, you know, it's a it's a throw that's not necessarily easy to make. You know, Zach Robinson on the the PFF podcast um, was talking about how when you go through the pre-draft process and you're doing workouts for these coaches, like that's what coaches, that's what they all want to see. That's the first thing that they they want to do is make you throw those deep outbreaks. Uh, to your left, you know, and, and see how you open those hips up, how you transfer your weight, like how how much zip you can get on those balls, right? Is your ball location good? Because those are dangerous throws uh, if you if you screw up. And, and we, we saw him make some of those and get a little bit lucky, right? Where you leave the deep comeback, right? You leave that inside. And, and it's just like, that's so dangerous. Like that's pick six, right? If the defender's in a little bit better spot, um, and, and so there were a few things there that, yeah, I thought were concerning. And, and when you look at those type of routes and those type of throws compared to what he did basically everywhere else, it was a pretty stark difference. So on throws outside the numbers beyond the line of scrimmage to his left, he was three for 12 for 34 yards. Um, one of those does include a, a drop by George Kittle. It was like the one time that he did do a pretty good job of of kind of driving on that throw. It was a third and 10 pass that Kittle dropped near the sideline. Um, so that's that's factored in there. But then you look at uh, throws beyond the line of scrimmage everywhere else. So middle of the field and to the right side, and he was 14 to 20 for 189 yards. Um, and, and so it was a very big difference there uh, in in his play. And so I think that's going to be something that um, really have to, to kind of focus in on over the next few weeks. And then um, I think the other thing, the other area where it was kind of like, this is a rookie QB thing. And this was actually kind of a knock on him, um, you know, coming out of school was that even though, you know, you hear Shanahan and a lot of other people talk about the toughness and, and sort of the willingness to hang in the pocket and take a shot as he's about to make a throw. Um, he's, he's, he gets a little panicky, I guess, like the pocket presence there, like the ability to move, uh, move fluidly within the pocket and, and to kind of, um, be able to still find receivers there is a little bit iffy. And we saw that come up, you know, quite a few times in this game where it was like, okay, I got a little bit of pressure 
and then my feet get a little happy and I try to scramble out. And then, oh, maybe one time I run into a brick wall as a defensive end over on one side. So uh, that was <laughs> uh, he's going to get himself killed if he continues to do that. And, and I tweeted this ugly. out earlier. Yeah. It was bad. And he the, the thing that was most concerning about that play specifically, the play where he got completely walloped by the the, the defensive end was that. He did feel pressure from whomever Fusco was guarding. I think maybe it was Ionitis or something like that. Yeah. And he definitely should have avoided that pressure, but he could have avoided it simply by sliding a little bit to the left. And then he had a clear step up area right between the left guard and the, the left tackle. And he could have stepped up and continued the play and continued his progressions. But instead, he was like, sprint to the sideline and then got completely sandwiched. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, you had to feel because it's like, oh, he's trying to get it out there. And there was so I mean, that was the more obvious one, you know, that that ended very poorly for him. But there was another one earlier in the game. I think it was uh, where he does he does the same sort of thing, right, where it's like interior pressure, get a little bit happy feet and panic and try to escape to my left and just make a, a very quick throw to the first person that I can see. And it was like Trent Taylor in this case, right, like trying to break out toward the sideline again. It was a, a you know, off the mark throw. So I think that's kind of the next area is you want to see him, uh, you know, be able to develop that ability to move in the in, in the pocket a little bit better and make more subtle movements. You know, this was a big problem that we talked about a lot with Colin Kaepernick. Right. It was it was in uh, a case where you saw him very often. He got better with it throughout his career. But um, it was these big movements, right, these big drastic movements that kind of take me out of the pocket when I get pressure as opposed to, you know, the quick sidestep or, or just kind of this subtle movement here, subtle movement there to where I can stay in that throwing posture and still be able to get the ball out. Yeah, and the person who does that the best, if you're looking at an example, is going to be Tom Brady. Tom Brady yeah. is the absolute best at this. Because that dude can't run around. That no. dude, I mean, he can't move. Like no. He's like, I, I could probably beat Tom Brady in a race. He's almost, it's almost as funny as watching Joe Flacco try to run for the end zone and then decide at the very last minute, this is a terrible idea, and throwing the ball when he's like two yards in front of the line of scrimmage. Like That's, uh, that's, that's, that's basically the level of Tom Brady athleticism that we're talking about. God, and Joe yet, Flacco. he is really, really good at, at sliding and moving in the pocket and buying him time without getting out of that throwing position. Yeah. So there were definitely some rookie things that Beathard did, especially when he was throwing outside the numbers and when it came to his pocket presence. But he did do enough to provide some reasons for optimism. You look at the plays outside of structure. There was, of course, a quarterback run where he picked up a couple of yards. But then, of course, the big one was that throw to Aldrick Robinson. And this was, speaking of pocket presence, one where it was indeed a, a result of his pocket presence that he was able to hit this throw. He steps up into the pocket, into the lane, uh, and then he was able to, to lob that deep ball to Aldrick Robinson. His throw to the seam uh, against uh, safety look where he threw it over the underneath coverage defender away from the oncoming safety right to George Kittle. That was a really, really solid, pl solid play. One of his three yeah. best throws on the day. And then overall, I think his ability to pick up things as the game went on. Uh, I tweeted a, vi a video earlier this week where he identified some trap coverages and some cover twos and then eventually made the 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 Redskins pay even though he was probably close to getting you know intercepted on a couple of those passes so those are the types of in-game learning things that you hope happen over the course of the year and you hope he doesn't make those mistakes you know more than a couple of times yeah. so i mean overall there there are definitely some signs there but i think the most promising thing is that we're able now to see what we have over the next 10 games and we're going into next season, which is going to be, you know, probably a more important season than this one with more information than we would have had had he just started four games, five games or six games. Because I do think 10 games is 
it's not, you know, a full season sample, but it's enough. It's enough that you can figure out what it is that you've got. You're going to go against different types of defenses. You're going to see them in different situations. Um, and that's what you want to get. You want to get information on the players you've got. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's yeah, 10 games, right, like isn't enough to make a final decision on a player by any means. But yeah, you start to get a good feel for what they're going to be, right? I mean, sometimes that goes, you know, just completely the other direction. Colin Kaepernick being a great example, right? You look at his first 10 games and it was like, oh my God, we have our franchise quarterback forever now. And then it was like, all right, well, maybe that didn't, uh, that's not how it worked out. So um, I think there, there are extreme cases like that, but I think most guys, you know, most rookies coming in, you have a decent feel for what they do well, right? What they do well, what they don't do well. Um, and, and whether there are things there that can be, you know, developed, um, and, 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 and whether you can build around them. I think there's a, a much larger conversation that we'll get to, you know, at some point, probably in the off season about like quarterbacks and building your team around them and how that, that all, um, you know, the different ways that you can kind of approach that. But I think if you have somebody that you can kind of scheme around, right. And you can put him in position to do some good things and you can surround, surround him with some good players like that. Um, can be a winning formula. So you have to find out if he can be that guy, you know, before you can kind of start making decisions for what you want to do going forward. Now, CJ Beathard wasn't the only rookie that had a good game against Washington. Solomon Thomas, first round draft pick, had probably one of his best games of the year. He, especially in the run game, most definitely in the run game. Uh, against Washington, he had four run stops on 29 run snaps, which was the most among edge defenders in week six. He had a 99.9 run defense grade and was our highest rated player overall in the game at 86.6. And those grades are, of course, via pro football focus. I mean, a run defense grade like 99.9. How the hell do you get a grade like that? Because I don't think I've seen that before. Uh, I mean, that's like that. I mean, the scale is technically zero to 100, but I like one. It's like it's like Madden, right? Like nobody gets 100 really until they started giving out hundreds, which is bullshit. Um, But that's a different (laughs) thing. it's like yeah it goes you know it's it's like 99 right that's that's really where it goes because you know no no player is is perfect you know and you're not going to have uh you know no negative plays throughout a season or anything like that so um yeah it it was insane it was he he was great and i think the the thing um that was nice about that is like this is where i think it was most reasonable to expect him to have an early impact right like this is what he did really well in college um, you know, last year among interior defenders in, in the FBS, he had the number one run defense grade. Um, like he made a major impact there. And then the whole thing was, OK, he he got better as a pass rusher throughout his college career. Right. Each season was a little bit better. And then finally, his final season in college um, was pretty good. But you knew that he was a guy that spent most of his time on the interior in college. And he just didn't have a lot of reps, you know, playing more in that four three DN spot that he was going to to likely be at in the NFL. And and so it was just going to take a little bit of time for him to get used to playing out there more consistently and, um, and you know, get those reps and, and, and the, the moves down from that standpoint. So um, I think, yeah, it was encouraging to see if he can come in and, and continue to play, you know, maybe not quite at that level. You know, you're not going to put up 99 uh, run defense grades every week by any means. But if he can be an impactful run player first and, and have, uh, you know, and, and kind of prove his worth there and then slowly get better with the pass rush, I think that's going to be a pretty good track for him and an encouraging one. I think overall you were able to see Solomon Thomas dominate against tight ends, which you would expect a player of his caliber and his position to do. He was matched up against Vernon Davis several times and Vernon Davis was 
absolutely no match for him in the run game. It just was not. You it can't was not block a these dudes with tight ends, man. It's just yeah. not going to work out well. Yeah. I mean, there was one play where he basically holds off. I mean, he completely collides with Vernon Davis, knocks him off his base, and then just holds him off with one arm uh, before he makes the tackle. Uh, there was one play where he is in pursuit and he ends up making the tackle after getting kind of crack blocked. There's another play where he's going up against Morgan Moses, who's an offensive lineman. And you're thinking, OK, now you're kind of matched up size to size. And Morgan Moses ends up two yards in the backfield. I mean, he had a, a really, really, really good run game. And, you know, this is this is one of those things where I think you, you think of a couple years ago, everybody was railing on. Uh, Jimmy Ward because he did not have he had that one bad game against Brandon Marshall on Monday night and everyone was like oh my god he sucks he sucks he sucks it's like no no no, hold on hold on give him a minute he's a rookie you know and 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 kind of look at his whole body of work look at him over the course of the season and you look at Jimmy Ward now and, and we're going to talk about him a little bit later but he's doing some really really good things and has been over the course of his 49ers career with Solomon Thomas of course you're you're looking for sack numbers you're like oh my god he doesn't have any sacks or now I guess he's got like two or three um, but you, you just, you hyper-focus on those things and, and you kind of miss the forest for the trees. You miss the fact that he is a, a different kind of player than someone who's going to come in and just rack up a bunch of sacks. And, you know, he came into the league as a solid run defender. I thought that he could be, you know, he could develop and grow into an edge player based on his athletic profile. TBD as to whether or not that's going to happen, but he is doing some good things, even if he's playing a little bit like a rookie. And you're hoping that over the course of the year, he develops into someone who's going to be very, very good, a la DeForest Buckner, who has developed into a complete and absolute all-pro after one year, well, based on snaps, maybe more than one year, <laughs> uh, of, of performing it like, okay, he's shown some flashes, he's done some good things, and now he's completely dominating people. Definitely. I, I think it's uh, a situation where you look around the league and you see some of these other rookies, right, that do come out and have um, just these kind of really flashy, you know, dominant performances at times. Like you see somebody uh, like a Carl Lawson in Cincinnati that's piling up, you know, big sack numbers and pressure numbers right away. Um, you see somebody like Miles Garrett who comes in and, and you know, it just looks like a monster in his first game. Um, and, and so you see these rookies that in other places that are having uh, maybe a more notable impact, a more obvious impact than somebody like Solomon Thomas's. But I think DeForest Buckner is the, uh, you know, perfect recent example of somebody that's kind of on the other sp- side of the spectrum, right? Where it's it's not in year one with DeForest Buckner, like we saw, like we wanted, you know, we thought he he played well. I think a lot of people that were paying attention thought he played well, um, but he didn't make a lot of really big plays, right? There weren't a ton of sacks. There weren't like a bunch of forced fumbles or, you know, these kind of splashy plays that really grab attention, um, and, and so if you weren't paying that close of attention, it would be easy to think that, oh, DeForest Buckner, he was, you know, top 10 pick and he didn't do anything for us last year. Um, I think it, it, not everybody can come in and make that impact right away. Like the Joey Bosa of last year, right? Where it's just like, he comes in and it's just hair on fire immediately. Um, or the, you know, even Derek Barnett this year and, uh, yeah. Miles Garrett this year. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think th- those are the types of people that Solomon Thomas was being compared to. So I think that's probably why, you know, he was he's he's being held in that regard. Yeah. Um, but I think that you just you have to look again at the complete player. And yeah, and it takes the, it takes time. And you look at some of the situations. I mean, Miles Garrett is his own kind of thing. He's going into a terrible situation, but he's I mean, he's a freak, you know, and, and is just kind of going and doing his thing right away. But yeah, you look at somebody, um, you know, like a Derek Barnett or like a, a Carl Lawson, right, who are, are playing really well early. And that, you know, credit to them, but they're also like in, uh, you know, probably much better situations, you know, and they're playing 
um, you know, with guys on defense that are, are probably a little bit more talented overall than, than what you have on the 49ers defense currently. So, um, yeah, I, I think uh, it, it's it's fine. There's no reason to press the panic button right now like this early just because Solomon Thomas isn't like in the defensive rookie of the year conversation or something like that. Like yep. some of these guys take a little bit longer to develop and, and they can still turn out to be very, very good football players. Now, the other thing that was apparent in this game is that Robert Sala needs to 100% stop with defensive linemen in coverage. <laughs> this is a quirk that has been uh, that I've noticed over the last couple of weeks. And I noticed it this week, most of all, because you've got Earl Mitchell in coverage against Jordan Reed. And that's, that just should never happen. How did that work out? Was, it, that, it, was it good? Exactly as you expected <laughs> with the reception for Jordan Reed near pass, the goal line. The, p- pass was knocked down? Yeah, no, cool. Yeah, that was no, great. Not at all. I don't think bowling balls can knock balls down. That's not thing. That's not a thing that happens in physics. But <laughs> all four starting defensive linemen have coverage snaps this year. DeForest Buckner has four. Four coverage snaps. Four. Which means that there are four plays where our best defensive lineman is not rushing the passer and is instead in coverage. Earl Mitchell has three. And of course, one of them was that pass to Jordan Reed that Jordan Reed that he gave up in the red zone. And, and on that play, on that play, they only rushed three. Meaning that Robert Sala thought he could get more out of Earl Mitchell in coverage than he could get out of Earl Mitchell rushing the passer. Like, that's just ridiculous. Why would you do that? Why, 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 why? Why, why, why? I mean, every, everyone, there. we've got more defensive linemen on the roster that have coverage snaps than ones that don't. The only three defensive linemen that don't have coverage snaps are DJ Jones, Tank Carradine, and Xavier Cooper. These are facts. These are all things that are that are accurate uh, to the best of my knowledge. I, I mean, it's it's weird. Um, and well, I shouldn't even say that. It's it's not even that weird. Like obviously, teams teams do it. Um, and it's just it's one of those things, kind of like rushing three, right? With Mangini, we talked about this a lot, and it was kind of. Uh, you know, this pet peeve where it's just like, I, I get it. Like, I understand the argument for it. I just don't like it. Right. I, I just don't. Uh, I think it's a bad idea. Like, you know, <laughs> again, with with these um, defensive linemen in coverage, it's like, OK, like I get you want to change up. Right. If, if you're making the argument for why is Earl Mitchell in coverage and you're rushing three in the red zone? Well, it's because okay, I, I don't think we're going to get pressure quick enough for it to matter in the red zone. So we want to get as many guys out in coverage as possible in, in some space that's already condensed, right? And and kind of try to clog up those lanes. Well, it's like, okay, that's fine in theory, but like, why are you dropping your defensive lineman in coverage? This is still stupid. Like, I I, uh, I don't know. It's just like, yeah, it's one of those things that's frustrating. Teams do it. Niners aren't like an outlier necessarily in that regard. Um, but it's just, uh, it's dumb. Yeah, I just don't like it. So it, it's not it happens more often with defensive ends. And, and this happens because of fire zone blitzes. Sometimes you drop your open side defensive end into that kind of hook zone area to to combat the hot read on the slant. And this may be why Solomon Thomas has the most cover snaps of any of our defensive linemen. He's got eight cover snaps, whereas no other defensive lineman has more than four. So it's something that happens with fire zones to, to get kind of that safe pressure that a lot of people have written about. I think, uh, you know, Dick, uh, Chris Brown had a really good article about Dick LeBeau and his safe pressure concepts. And uh, Matt Bowen does a lot of really good stuff on those. We'll, we'll post those articles in the write-up for the podcast. So head the Niners Nation in, in order to get a bit more background on those fire zones and what the defensive linemen are supposed to do. But, but even then, you know, I think there are other reasons why you hope that 
that dropping a defensive lineman is as helpful. And that's because sometimes you can fake the offensive line into thinking you're coming. And then when you drop into coverage, it messes up who they're going to block. This is probably the, the idea behind dropping Earl Mitchell in the red zone as well. It's like, okay, you think a guard is going to block Earl Mitchell. And he's like, yeah, they're never dropping Earl Mitchell into coverage. Like, I'm going to block him. He's coming. All of a sudden, he doesn't. And now you've got, you know, you're rushing three, but you've got a one-on-one matchup where maybe previously you would have been double teamed. It's not the best reason, but, you know, it's, it's there, and it's a reason why people do it. Um, I just still don't understand why you're dropping someone like Mitchell, like a nose tackle, and why you're dropping someone like Buckner, our best defensive lineman. Like, those are the people that, like, you shouldn't. And if you do think you need to move Mitchell off of the line, then just replace him with, like, a safety or something. Like, just... Just, yeah. you know, condense the box with like a jailbreak kind of thing or, or like a uh, those blitzes where the where no one has a position. Everyone's roaming around and then send whomever you want and drop whomever you want and create confusion that way. Yeah. It just makes a little sense to me. But to your point, David, this does happen around the league. Believe it or not, the Niners are not even in the uh, top five of teams that do this. Uh, we're ninth overall with the number of coverage snaps that our defensive linemen have. Number one team in the league, New England. They do it the most. They do it about 5.8% of their defensive lineman snaps. Next teams that do it, Giants, Browns, Dolphins, and, ding, 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 the Jacksonville Jaguars. <laughs> um, I mean, this has got to be where it's coming from, right? Of course, uh, you know, with, with Salah spending time there and and having uh, Gus Bradley's influence, um, you know, and in, in what he's doing defensively, um, it, it makes sense that, you know, that's something, if that was kind of a quirk that uh, Bradley liked to do, you know, that uh, this is something that Salah would have picked up. I mean... I guess Bradley isn't there anymore. I mean, they're running his defense, you know, so I don't know if like this year's number necessarily correlates to that um, all that much. Now that I think about it a little bit more, but um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's something uh, again that teams do when you look at other teams, you know, we typically, you know, bring up the Seattle and Atlanta defenses when, when we're looking to uh, compare tendencies, right? Because those are kind of the other teams that have been running essentially the same structured defense for a little bit. Um, and, and so they provide good points of reference there and they're, you know, down around 1% of the time in terms of, uh, you know, their defensive lineman playing coverage. So it, it's not something I think that's necessarily, uh, a part of this defense, right? Where it's like it, with the Mangini stuff and, and only rushing three, like that was something that kind of line of defense liked to do, right? Like everybody that kind of ran that same style, that same structure of defense, uh, throughout the league had a pretty high percentage of only rushing three uh, at times. And so it was something that we could expect. I don't know that that's the case here. It's just something that Salah seems to to kind of like to throw in there every once in a while now. But um, I don't know. Hopefully it's something that I would, it's something I would like to see go away. I would, I would just like to see DeForest Buckner and Solomon Thomas like rushing the passer every time that they're yeah. on the field, you know, and it's pass. You so. can get effective fire zone blitzes and not have to drop a defensive lineman into coverage. Or if you're going to drop someone into coverage, maybe drop and, and, you know, Doomerville does have some, some coverage snaps. You've also got Eli Harold who have coverage snaps. You've also got uh, Aaron Lynch who have coverage snaps. These are all players that have played three, four outside linebacker. And they are asked more often to be in coverage. So if you are going to drop a defensive lineman into coverage, I would say drop one of those that have experience in coverage, practicing coverage techniques. That that makes a bit more sense to me. Yeah. Don't put it on much on coverage. Bowling balls don't do well in coverage. They just don't. He's like, it's like Mike Tolbert. That's who Earl Mitchell reminds me of. His athletic body when I see him on screen is like, oh, look, it's, it's Tolbert. 
It's Especially Tolbert. since like that's the one thing that Earl Mitchell does like kind of well is rush, rush the passer. The um, you know, I'd be more inclined to drop him into coverage on rundowns. Um, <laughs> just to, just to get, he'd probably do more good just getting out of the way as opposed to doing whatever he does when he's in there. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know, man. Just, it's, just a gap exchange with Brock yeah. Coyle. Let me and, just see Brock Coyle. Run into and Earl Mitchell's gap is like the fucking bench, the one between the <laughs> the two boards on the bench there. Like, go occupy that gap for me uh, on oh, rundowns, man. please. Uh, well, let's get to. We won't talk about Brock Coyle this week. If you want to see uh, his absolute suckage, you can check it on the Twitter feed. But uh, that we are going to get to someone who did play a pretty good game this week, and that's going to be our spotlight player of the week. That is Jimmy Ward. This wasn't his best game of the season, but he did finally make a couple of splash plays at the safety position. He played that overthrow up the seam incredibly well and nearly came away with a diving interception if his elbow doesn't hit the ground. Um, or no, it was reviewed, actually, and, and the ball... Yeah, the ball, it, it kind of, tra- I guess, it like trapped the ball it, yeah, a little yeah. bit. It yeah, the slid ball on the ground there. a little yeah. bit, yeah, yep. um, which was unfortunate. But he, the fact that he was able to break on that ball and even be in a position to make that interception is just a testament to how fluid and how quickly he can react to plays back there. And, of course, he had that big play on the fumble recovery that led to the game-tying score near the end of the third quarter. So, Jimmy Ward, man, he was an above-average corner uh, at, while he was playing with the 49ers. And, like, well, I'm at free safety looks like his best position. And he looks even better at free safety, man. He looks really, really good back there. Yeah, I, I think it's a, a case where this is this is what he does best. You know, this is, um, even though he had some versatility, and that was something that was, you know, definitely a positive for him coming out of school was like, okay, we can do some different things with him, right? We can play him in the slot. But I think this is, you know, now that we've had a chance to see him there for a little bit, and obviously we'll get more and more uh, snaps with him as the season goes along in, in that role. But um, this does appear to be his best position. And I think it's nice to see him starting to come up with some of those big plays, right? And, and get some recognition. He didn't get it a lot at corner. You know, we had the one game where he had the the pick six, right? Uh, you know, last season there was kind of like one of the first big moments that he's he's had. Um, and so it's just nice seeing him, uh, you know, get kind of a little bit of the spotlight there. And, and especially because it is free safety, right? You know, unless you're somebody like Earl Mitchell, who's just a freak of nature, a lot of your snaps are just spent kind of chilling out there behind everybody, right? Not necessarily heavily involved in the action, especially from the broadcast view. You know, you're, you're not coming up um, and, and getting involved in those run snaps that are right there around, around the line of scrimmage. Um, so it, it's not a large percentage of snaps that he gets an opportunity to make something happen, but we're seeing him, you know, flash a little bit, come on the screen and it's even in the run game too. I mean, he, uh, he does come down. If, if some of those runs are getting off into the second level, getting out, uh, you know, outside a little bit, like you see him, all of a sudden fly into the screen. He looks right, to hit make, people, dude. He's out there trying to hit someone. And, and he's I love a great it. tackler. Like that, I think that's kind of an underrated part of his game is uh, he missed tackles very, very rarely during his time at cornerback. Um, and and so he he's obviously not afraid to kind of get his nose in there and, and be physical in the run game. But he is a sure tackler, which is something that uh, is really important in that free safety role. Again, you, you know, are the safety. You are, you are the last line, line, of, line of, defense. of defense. That's right. Um, and that's it. And it's and it's a lot about, you know, making plays in the run game there and, and making those open field tackles from that single high position is one of the tougher things to do defensively in football, because um, you have to, you have to basically be perfect with your angles, right? You can't, uh, you can't be late. You can't be, uh, you know, take a poor angle to the ball carrier because obviously those guys at running back are great athletes and they'll make you pay for that. So you have to be kind of on point decisive and come down and then be able to make that tackle, right? When, once you get there, you can't, um, be somebody that's just going to kind of dive at their feet and, and hit the ground. So 
Um, I think, yeah, he does all of those things well. And I, I, I am excited to kind of see how he grows into that role a little bit more as he gets more time there. Overall, Jimmy Ward's grade for the game was 79.7, uh, and he had a higher run grade this week. He had 82.4 run defense grade uh, this game against the Washington Redskins. So that's the game wrap-up. Uh, I think we're overall pretty excited to see what uh, good Mr. Beathard has for us over the next uh, 10 games. Solomon Thomas showing up big in the run game. Don't miss the forest uh, for the trees. There's a DeForest Buckner pun in there that I've made already. DeForest, I know. Yep. Uh, and definitely stop putting bowling balls in coverage. But let's get to the rundown because now the game is over. We look forward to the week's news and then, of course, the game against Dallas. Uh, you've got a couple of tidbits from the game. Uh, Akella Witherspoon, preseason better Isles favorite, playing some snaps. He's getting in there, man. Um, yeah, he didn't get a lot of uh, action necessarily in, in, in terms of targets. Like I think he was targeted three times, uh, was all gave up two receptions, uh, and two of those were to, to Ryan Grant. Um, so it wasn't, yeah, like a huge volume. We didn't get to see a ton of, uh, of action from him there from a coverage standpoint, but it was his most significant snap count um, of the season. The thing that I thought that was interesting, because obviously we'll continue to pay attention to how he's doing there and, and how the cornerbacks in general are doing, but um, so far throughout the season, like up, in, uh, up to this game, the 49ers had basically been playing uh, their corners boundary and field. So meaning... One of them plays to the short side of the field generally, and that's been uh, typically Richard Robinson. And then Dante Johnson plays to the wide side of the field. Um, there was one game where that didn't happen, but that's kind of been their, their MO so far. In this game, they didn't do that. So they basically ran that three-man rotation with, with Witherspoon, Johnson, and Robinson there. But Robinson stuck on the left side. So whenever Robinson was in, he was the left cornerback. Whenever Johnson was in, he was the right cornerback. And then whenever... Uh, Witherspoon was in, he was just the other one. So he would go to, he was the one guy that was bouncing back and forth to both sides there, which I thought was, uh, was kind of interesting. So um, yeah, I think it's just kind of uh, that situation in general with guys not playing uh, necessarily all that well, um, you know, throughout the season and obviously Witherspoon having some, uh, you know, need, needing to kind of develop there a little bit and, and see how he does. Like, it's just going to be something uh, to pay attention to over the next few weeks. Now, Richard Robinson, the other corner, is, of course, trending in a more positive direction. In weeks one through three, the passer rating allowed was 129.3. I was ranked 96th. It's not good. It's not good. It's not good. It's not, it's not good at all. Uh, and he allowed 1.4 yards per cover snap, which was 68th. Uh, it, basically, he was not playing well. Everyone knew it. But the last couple of weeks, weeks four through six, his passer rating allowed has dropped all the way down 40.7, which is eighth. His yards allowed per cover snap are 0.71, which puts him at 25th. And, and overall, he's just playing quite a bit better. He still has a couple of lapses. Uh, I posted a video where he messed up a banjo coverage there against Washington. But overall, he's playing better. And, and this is the hope. The hope is that, you know, much like Seattle has figured out, it wanted to play defense after a couple of weeks, that just a couple more weeks of development is going to get him back to the level that we thought Richard Robinson was going to get to before the season started. DeForest Buckner this week in DeForest Buckner does DeForest Buckner things. So, I mean, he's just continuing to be, uh, to be awesome. Um, one interesting stat that I kind of came across doing some research for other stuff, um, is that he has made. So tackles in general are a mostly useless stat. Like they don't tell you anything other than, okay, he was around the ball carrier when he came down. Right. But that's not always a good thing. If that's happening, eight, nine, 10 yards or more down, down the field. Like that's not necessarily a great thing for your defense. It's a right? coil rule. Um, and, and so tackles alone aren't a good way to judge defenders. But if you start looking at, you can kind of 
look at specific situations and, and, and get a better idea if those tackles are actually helping your defense stop the, the opponent in key situations. So if you look in the run game, right, it runs that went for two yards or less and then did not result in the first down. So it wasn't a case of like a two-yard run on a third and one that converted, right? So you, two yards or less, not converting for a first down. DeForest Buckner has made 11 tackles in those situations, uh, which is the second most currently among defensive linemen. Only uh, a couple of linebackers even have more. Like Khalil Mack leads this category with 14 of them. Um, so to have DeForest Buckner at 11, just kind of barely behind Khalil Mack, who's uh, maybe the most dominant edge run defender in the game, that's that's pretty good. That's like pretty good company to be in. So uh, in, in your scene, teams start to do some interesting things to him. Like we saw uh, Washington run a trap play for him. So, uh, you know, we talked a lot about in the option game, right? If you, you can't block a guy, read him is kind of like the, the old adage there and, and why a lot of teams like to read the other team's best player. Trap kind of works the same way, right? You're taking the aggressiveness. They want to get upfield and penetrate through that, that gap. Uh, and then you just don't block the guy at the line of scrimmage, right? And so uh, we saw that happen once here uh, in, in, in this game where he just kind of falls flat. He's expecting a double team, falls flat to the ground because all of a sudden there's no resistance there. Um, so teams are starting to kind of throw different different things his direction because of the impact that he's having on a down-to-down basis there. Eric Armstead, of course, lands on injured reserve with a broken hand, and he's going to have surgery. He'll be out, uh, they say, I think originally four to six weeks, although if he's having surgery, chances are it's going to be closer to like six to eight, I would think. Um, I would be surprised if we see him again, right? Yeah, like, I, I'd be surprised at this point. Uh, they, they put him on injured reserve. There's a There's a slim chance that he could come back at at the end of the season but he's got to if he's one of the two players that we can designate to return he's got to spend at least eight weeks on injured reserve and that means that we're in week six that puts it at week 12 and Is and that's gonna, if everything goes well no that's i mean that's he, he, that means he would play two games so we have 10 games left if he's yeah. out for eight weeks well i guess a buy so you yeah. get your buy in there still so maybe three games is it worth it to have DeForest Buckner come and, back? Or, I mean, uh, Arik Armstead for three games? No, like, and, and the other thing is we've already got two players that could come back already. Of course, you've got Tank Carradine uh, and you've got Ronald Blair, who are both on injured reserve. Both could come back. And if we do use our, our designation to return on them, then there's no more designated to return spots left for Eric Armstead. So Eric's Arm, Eric Armstead's season is likely over. Um, he tweeted out that he can't play with a club if he could. That he would for everyone who's like, just play with the club, bro. Um, it's always that easy. Yeah, because it's super easy. Rub I mean, some dirt on it. <laughs> put some Windex on it or some Robitussin or whatever, you know, kind of mythical, helpful thing that you're going to put on your, yourself to fix it. But uh, it sucks because he wasn't playing poor this season. Uh, he was playing pretty well and he was playing better now that he was playing a more natural position after Tank Carradine went down. And, and yeah, I mean, it just sucks to see him go down because this is his second year now where he is not going to be playing a full slate of games because of an injury. So he he's done for the year, uh, but you know, hopefully it, it all turns out well and he's able to come back at full health. So one interesting thing offensively that's, uh, and this may only be interesting to me because I find uh, Chip Kelly things kind of funny sometimes. Um, so Pat Thorman does excellent stuff um, for PFF uh, on the fantasy side of things, but he does a weekly um, column that kind of looks at pace of play and no huddle because obviously that has... Uh, big fantasy implications because if teams are running more plays, they have more opportunities to score fantasy points. So that's kind of the angle that he's coming at there. Um, But there's also, uh, of course, a lot of uh, interesting takeaways there just from a normal football perspective. And so right now, the 49ers 
uh, have seen their no huddle rate increase in each of the last four weeks. So in week six, they got all the way up to 20%, which was the third highest no huddle rate on the week. Um, And they're averaging on the season 25.3 seconds per snap, which if you remember back to Chip Kelly stuff, tempo stuff that we talked about, uh, you know, a bunch during that time, um, that's not far behind where Chip Kelly was at with the Eagles uh, it, it for, for a lot of his time there. It's it's a little bit um, low because he was a little bit slower in San Francisco. So we're right around kind of that same mark. But that is the fastest mark in the league right now. So the 49ers have the fastest pace of play in the NFL. Um, they were below 20 seconds this week, 19.8 seconds in week six against Washington. Um, so they are they're moving quickly. Um, and I, And I think. It's just hilarious to me because a lot of people that that took a lot of the Chip Kelly stuff is like, oh, that doesn't work here. That doesn't work in the NFL. Go back to college. Go back to college with your your shotgun and your no huddle and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like Kyle Shanahan, he's a pro coach, so it's okay. And nobody's going to talk about it. Nobody's going to ignore it. I think it. I don't think it's bad either way. Like, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think this is great, right? Pace, we've talked a lot about the advantages uh, that that can provide offensively. Um, but it's just kind of funny that nobody's talking about this being uh, uh, the reason the 49ers are 0-6, right? They're playing too fast offensively. Their defense is on the field too much. Like, you're not hearing those arguments this year because Kyle Shanahan's the coach and not Chip Kelly. Uh, so that's uh, hilarious to me. Last item in the rundown is going to be another defensive lineman. That's Xavier Cooper. He's providing some solid backup minutes so far this year. And, of course, now with Eric Armstead going down to injured reserve, with uh, you're going to see probably a bit more of Xavier Cooper, even though they don't quite play the same position. He penetrated well on a couple of plays against Washington. Uh, he had one play where he was in the backfield immediately and didn't make the tackle, but definitely influenced the run. Overall, he's got a 76 grade on Pro Football Focus, uh, and it's pretty evenly split between run and pass. Now, granted, that's in limited play. I think that's like under 100 snaps. He's got like somewhere near 77. But overall, he is someone to watch. He's someone who was added, uh, I think, later in the year. But he's providing definitely some solid backup minutes uh, and will probably need to over the course of the year. But that wraps up the rundown. And now let's move on to the good old Dallas Cowboys. Uh, The game preview against Dallas. Of course, they're coming to Levi's in what will probably be a home game for Dallas based on what (laughs) happened last year. Uh, It's basically we're trading barbs with them at this point. We we I I was at the game where the Niners took over the the Dallas Cowboys Stadium and that was three years ago at was this point. Was that when we were still good? That or? was Jim Harbaugh's last year, I think. Okay. Uh, that was yeah. We beat the, Vernon Davis caught a couple touchdowns and Colin Kaepernick was out there oh, slinging the yeah, ball. Oh yeah, that's right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No. I yeah, I think that was 2014, that. and that was the beginning of the end, basically. Uh, yeah, and, that was like coming out, like you know, coming off the the, the, yeah. the pair of NFC Championship games, and then yeah. just destroying the Cowboys in that's Week right. One, and then. Didn't go so well. Tony Romo had a back injury, so he was like kind of limited in terms of effectiveness. And yeah, I mean, it, it all that was the last time uh, the Dallas Niners game was fun, basically. <laughs> and now the, the Dallas Cowboys are coming into town. And the first thing that we'll be watching is, of course, Ezekiel Elliott because he's playing uh, because much like a catch, no one has any idea what the hell a suspension is. Yeah, I mean, I'm not even going to try like we're not going to mess with like all the legal stuff that's going on here. But it seems like he's going to play. I I guess he's going to play. He's going to be on the field. Um, And I think this will be a good test for the 49ers run defense, right? They've been uh, improved this year. Um, I forget exactly. I didn't get a chance to check where they're at DVOA at this point. 
Um, but oh, they, we forgot the DVOA update. That's one of the rundown things here. I'll, I'll look it up can, while you're talking. Yeah, so I mean, that's that's obviously been an area that they they've uh, improved in this year, and so it's just always nice to kind of measure yourself and and uh, against a team that runs the ball well, like Dallas does when they're kind of going. So um, you know, getting to see how they can stop Zeke if that is a thing that can happen. I mean, the interesting thing too is not only Zeke, but the the other things that they do in the run game. You know, because of of Dak and and the flexibility that he offers there is almost a little bit more uh, like what what we were thinking from Carolina, right? They don't do quite as many things in the run game, um, but definitely when, when you start adding the quarterback elements in there, I mean, Kirk Cousins scored a touchdown because Solomon Thomas, uh, you know, because that, that side of the field didn't really defend. I mean, you're not expecting Kirk Cousins to do that necessarily, no. but uh, you know, it's, but it's something to, zone, uh, to pay attention to. Option plays and zone reads do become a bit more prevalent in the red zone because it does give you a numbers advantage and you're not exposing your quarterback to, you know, huge hits because you've got, you know, you've got enough space and you've got enough time to where you can say, all right, if you can get five yards and you're in the end zone, you, you'll be okay. Um, but the, the Cowboys do that with Dak Prescott and, and that'll be something to watch. Incidentally, DVOA update. The 49ers are up to 26th this week, up from 27th. Uh, their offense is 28th in DVOA. Their defense is 24th in DVOA, and their special teams are 5th. And 13th run defense currently. Yep. So up to 13th pass defense has obviously been the problem, still at 26th. Um, yeah, run defense, man, it's been, it's been pretty solid. They've yeah. had you know, a few lapses here and there to give up some big plays, but overall it's been, it's been pretty good. Yeah, so this will be a good test. It'll probably be Ezekiel Elliott's last game before he actually goes on suspension, unless, of course, there is some other legal quirk that allows him to get unsuspended and then you resuspended. I don't make the rules, man. I don't Just know. Let me know is. when he's playing. That's, yeah. that's really all. Elliot's only topped 85 yards once over his last four games. And of course, the Cowboys have dropped three of their last four. So it's not like they're coming in hot. It's not like they're coming in as the darlings of the NFC. And, and of course, they don't have Sean Lee, which means that the Carlos Hyde might actually get some production this week as well. So whereas we might we were kind of expecting a shootout last week against Washington, I don't know that this one's necessarily going to be a shootout per se. Uh, although the next one, of course, is going to be if it is a shootout or the Niners are operating from behind, then we'll be watching DeMarcus Lawrence against Trent, against Trent Brown. Yeah, two of the kind of big stories early on, right? Um, you know, Trent Brown, I think he's his play has cooled off a little bit. He's kind of gone the last couple of weeks more back to, uh, you know, the player that he was last season uh, and not quite showing that, you know, much improved play that we saw like over the first four weeks. But um, you know, still somebody that I think has played very well overall so far this season. And Demarcus Lawrence has been uh, just kind of a monster off the edge. I think he still has it. Last I checked, he had the most pressures still uh, among edge defenders. But you know, he he's just kind of had some monster monster games there. Oh, Chandler Jones. So he he, he fell off a little bit. Chandler Jones and uh, Clayus Campbell caught up to him, but still, thirty one total pressures through six games is uh, a pretty absurd rate. So getting to see he and he lines up on the left side of the defense, meaning uh, he's going to go against Trent Brown pretty much every snap. He only has two pass rush snaps from the opposite side of the line uh, so far in the season. So it is going to be Lawrence versus Brown. We're not going to see Staley kind of getting involved um, in that matchup, but also just kind of seeing, yeah, how Brown Brown handles, you know, a top pass rusher off the edge there and and getting to see him continue to improve and do well because he does some, you know, there's some interesting things that Brown's starting to do. I think um, Brandon Thorne, who writes for for a variety of places, but I believe this one was on uh, FanRag, if I remember right. Um, he had a great article recently. If you find him, he's at Veteran Scout on Twitter. 
uh, you can find that article, but had a really great breakdown of Trent Brown and um, kind of some of the techniques that he's been using throughout the season uh, to, to really help him out. So uh, definitely track that down and, and give it a read if you want to know um, some more of the details as to what he's been doing. But this will be, uh, yeah, a big matchup for him for sure. Yeah, well, this is the second week now that I've seen Trent Brown make some pretty critical mental errors. Usually with Trent Brown, it's kind of a yeah. physical thing where it's, you know, in, in the run game, he doesn't have the dexterity to get out on, on some reach blocks or, or kind of cut off the backside. And, and of course, in, in, in pass protection, this is where he shines. His, he's able to use his size and length to stonewall people. But this is two weeks in a row now where we've seen him run or go the opposite direction as everyone else at the snap on run action plays or on run plays. Bro, you don't know the play call. You don't know the assignments, okay? You can't tell me that when he's the one player that's going the opposite direction as everybody else, that he's wrong. You don't know that. Yeah, You're not I in mean, the meeting room. Are you in the meeting room? No, I'm not no. in the meeting room. I, uh, you know what? You're absolutely right. There is nothing that indicates that he is going in a completely different direction than everyone else when he's running into Garrett Selleck's face and Garrett <laughs> Selleck's looking around like WTF. And then, oh, look, the guy that should have been blocked by him had he gone the right way runs directly into the backfield and hits the quarterback uh there's nothing about that play that indicates what they were supposed to do nothing whatsoever sometimes it's not that hard guys like yeah. it's, it's really uh it's it, it's still football like football's complex in its own way but it's i mean it's not that hard yeah All right it's it's not that difficult you have no idea that the one guy doing one thing different from everyone else is the guy that's wrong Okay, no idea whatsoever. No, I don't know if he's wrong, but all I'm saying is something's probably wrong here. <laughs> something's not going so well. So Trent Brown versus Demarcus Lawrence uh, is going to be something that we'll be watching, especially if the Niners get behind early. Remember last week, the, the Niners were one of the higher situation neutral passing teams that's increased week to week, meaning that we like to lean on the pass more and more. I don't know if that's going to happen with CJ Beathard this week, but the Niners have been relying on the pass more and more, even in situation neutral areas. So that might be something I don't know if that's going to continue against the Cowboys because the Cowboys actually have a pretty decent pair of outside corners. Yeah. Um, but if they have a weakness, it's in the run game and they've got no Sean Lee and it matters. Yeah, I mean, they're well, they're I mean, their defense in general has been has been pretty bad. So I, I, I that was one thing I was going to mention that like. This is a good uh, a good time for Beathard to come in right against this defense um, like it was. Uh, I forget oh, what team was it, but there was it was the same kind of thing last year where it was like when Blaine Gabbert um, or when, no two years ago, excuse me, when Blaine Gabbert took over for Colin Kaepernick, that was like, man, they're going against some crappy defenses now and he's probably going to look good and it's going to give, you know, kind of this false sense of, of what he actually is as a player. Um, you know, this is, I think, a good chance for him to go against. I mean, yeah, they have the, the run game has been the biggest problem. They have the league's worst run defense by DVOA right now. Um, but they're 23rd in pass defense, so it's not like they've been great there either. Um, that's you know they're right around the same ballpark uh, as the 49ers are in that regard. So um, they they should have some opportunities to move the ball, right? That the opportunity should be there. Whether Beathard takes advantage and the passing game can take advantage, like that remains to be seen, of course. But uh, this is a game where I think you 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 would expect them to look a little bit better, right? This isn't a, a tough defense here that they're going to be going against. So the other thing that we'll be watching is whether or not Des Bryant's cornerback dependency is going to continue. Des Bryant is one of the most cornerback sensitive wide receivers in the NFL. What does that mean? That means that when he's going up against crappy cornerbacks in the bottom 25 uh, kind of cornerbacks in the league, he does really well. He balls out. But when he goes against really, really good cornerbacks, when he goes against elite competition, he basically gets shut down. 
Case in point, this year, he went for a whopping 12 yards on two receptions against Patrick Peterson, who generally shadows the team's best wide receiver. Could not shake Patrick Peterson at all. Against Denver, which has really good cornerbacks, he only had 59 yards. This year, he's faced a couple of good corners over the course of the year, and the only time he's had, I think, more than like 90 yards was against Green Bay. Uh, and and that's, you know, Green Bay's defense is a little better this year. Kevin King yeah. is pretty good, but they're I mean, not. Cornerback has been just a massive problem for them. For yeah, so long. for years, yeah. for years. So, the, the of course, the 49ers have not great corners. Rashard Robinson, of course, is maybe, confirm. is maybe turning things around over the last couple of weeks. But if you see Des Bryant against Dante Johnson, if you see Des Bryant lined up in the slot, maybe, um, which you don't see that often because of, you know, Cole, Frodo, Baggins, Beasley. But you, you do see <laughs> what? Frodo, bro. That's uh, that's that's Frodo in the slot. But you, you've got um, you, this could be a Des Bryant breakout game. So basically what I'm saying is if you were going to start Des Bryant in a daily fantasy league, uh, this might be the week to start him. And so just from a, an alignment standpoint and what they typically do with them. So, yeah, slot, not a big part of his game. Um, has 65 snaps uh, in the slot out of just shy of 300. He's at 299 on the year. So he'll be there every once in a while, but it's not going to be a big part of his game. Um, on the outside, he does tend to line up on the left side a little bit more. So if the 49ers stick with that same sort of cornerback rotation that they went with last week, that means a lot more of Dante Johnson and Akella Witherspoon matched up with him than it does Richard Robinson. Yeah, that's uh, that's no bueno. But hey, we'll get to talk about maybe a killer with a spoon shutting down yeah, Des Bryant. I, hey, let's see. I mean, I don't know that that's how it'll work out necessarily, but uh, I'm all for him getting some opportunity. Right. Like I want to see uh, where he's at at this point. You know, we'll see see how he does when he's uh, challenged a little bit. So let's let's do it. Bring it on. All right. So it's going to be uh, again, if you're listening to this and you're a Niner fan and you're thinking to yourself, man, I don't know if I want to go to this game. It's probably going to be hot. I don't know, man. Like, go. Go to the game. Go to the game. I don't want to see your ticket get sold to a Dallas fan. Don't want to do it. Go to the game. Even if you don't go, empty seats are just as good as not Dallas fans being there. <laughs> just as good. Really? <laughs> just just, just don't let it On be. On second that no one show up. Let's just have yeah. Levi's be empty. Treat it like an alt-right protest. Just nobody show up. Right? This is what we're talking about. No. Go, go to the game. Be loud. Cheer for the Niners. And don't let Dallas take it over, even though I'm resigned to the fact that it's going to sound like a goddamn Dallas home game. But, David, what's your prediction? The line opened up at Niners plus four. And that was, of course, because when the line opened up, Ezekiel Elliott wasn't going to play. And now, of course, it looks like he is. And the line's moved to Niners plus six. And, of course, it's a home game for the 49ers, which means that it's really like, you know, Dallas plus nine. Uh, so last year we got it wrong. We, we voted against the elegant tank. We were wrong. We were absolutely wrong. Elegant Tank is still on. Oh, we are two and four against the spread so far. So, David, what do the Niners do? Do they continue their historic streak of six straight losses by three points or less? Or do they uh, do they cover? Do they do they win outright? Do they, what happens? Everything in me says that like no, this this can't continue to happen, right? Like they can't continue to lose by less than one score every. Oh, week. they can. Um, but it's just like it, man. And I think this game is a game that makes a lot of sense for that to happen, right? Like it with Washington. I think to me that was a little bit surprising. I think Washington is a better team right now. They're playing better football than Dallas is currently. They. Are, they're a more well-rounded team, right? A better defense, 
Um, and so I, I think that they, was a game that made sense on the road that it was like, okay, you could see this one getting out of hand pretty easily. Um, now that you're at home against, you know, a team that doesn't have a, a very good defense, you know, you think that's going to be helpful for, uh, your offense to try to keep some points on the board and maybe keep things a little bit close. Um, and so I don't know. I, I, I think in this one, I do have to go with the cover. I'm st- I'm going to go with a loss still. So I'm going to go with another, uh, Pythagorean win here. Um, yeah, I think they can keep it within, you know, a, a three, four point game here. I also like the cover, um, especially at six points. I mean, that's basically a touchdown. I, I think I, the only thing that worries me is that if, if the Niners do get down by like 17, like they did against Washington, then Demarcus Lawrence gets the tee off. And and that worries me a little bit. Even going up against Trent Brown, I think he's just that good. I think he's yeah. a little better than Trent Brown, even when it comes to, to pass protection and, and pass rushing. But but overall, I think this is a game the Niners can keep close. And, and I think let's let's do it, dude. Let's keep going for the elegant tank. Um, if they manage to get a six straight loss, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. Uh, it's it's so nuts, man. Um, it's it's just I can't even think of like another thing. I mean, obviously, no, because, no, because five, it's, it's never, never happened. happened. Yeah, it's, it's like never five happened. has never happened. Um, it's just so weird to see. I mean, this is a lot for a team in one season, right? To to have this yeah. many games, uh, not only that are just close, but to to lose that many over usually, the course of an entire season. Usually a team, six. a team with a lot of close games in one season is going to have about six of them. Usually you see like records in close games of like four and two or two or three and three, usually yeah. six games over the course of the year. We've basically only had every single like we've only had one game that wasn't close. Every single game after that first Carolina game has been close. So I mean, everything says let we probably should regress to the mean and, and right. Uh, it's like it, one of these points is like they're either going to win or they're going to get blown out because that's just yeah. going to be how it works. But, yeah, but you know uh, what? I don't. I don't yeah, I don't, I don't know. Sunday's going to be that day. Yep, I don't know. Sunday's going to be that Why day. Why not? Unless, unless apparently, you know, it's like every, the Niners are doing everything backwards. You know, just like, you know, lose close games. I mean, it's it's just, it's been so impossible to predict, like, this NFL season in general, I feel like. And then, you know, that when you have a team like the Niners that just have so many young players that aren't playing necessarily consistently from week to week. And so it's difficult to know, you know, what you're going to expect from them. Uh, it's tough. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, we've obviously been wrong more than we've been right so far this season in trying to predict these games. So... Uh, it's been tough, but I, I think, yeah, I think on paper at least, and, and with how these teams seem to match up, like it seems like it should be, unless Dallas's offense just catches fire suddenly and, and really gets everything on track, um, which wouldn't be, which I wouldn't mean, be surprising. Sure, yeah, I mean, you could, you could definitely see that that happening, but, um, but right now with the way that they're playing, it just like it seems to line up to where if they can do enough offensively, like they're going to be able to kind of stick around in, in the same ballpark with them. Well, that about does it for this week's episode of the podcast. Definitely follow us on Twitter. I've got some video recaps of things that we've talked about this week, which we'll put some of them in the articles. But definitely, if you want to get them as soon as they happen, follow us on Twitter. You can follow me at Better Rivals. David, where can they follow you? That's going to be at Newman NFL. So remember, if you're a Niners fan and you've got tickets, or even if you don't, make it a point to go to the game. Go fill that stadium up with Niner fans. Don't make it a home game for the Cowboys. And as always, go Niners.
Hey everybody, it's Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge. I host a podcast every week called The Verge Cast with my friends Paul Miller and Dieter Bone. We've got a rotating cast of characters from our entire site, which is about technology, how it impacts culture, and how that is all a big cycle that causes us to have a wide variety of feelings that you can listen to every Friday. We've done over 300 episodes in the six years since The Verge has been around, but you only need to listen to one, the latest one, to get caught up on everything in tech news. Vergecast is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else. Also, you listen to podcasts, check it out.